Well, thanks again for listening to the Park Hills podcast. This week we dive into the huge topic of exile. If you like what you hear and you're enjoying this podcast or just our sermons in general, you can find everything that we are producing at the Park Hills Church app or parkhillschurch.com. from your home and sent into a place that you don't want to be is probably everybody's worst nightmare, right? Yeah, I mean, think about the the pains that are, the, the various pains that are associated with that would be so incredible. Totally. Um, there's no stability left um, for people who have families. It's not just caring for yourself. It's caring for your families now. Mm-hmm. Uh, without that revenue source, without that place to be at night, without the connections that we have in life. Um, man, incredible, incredibly painful for those exiled. Uh, and God has a purpose in it. Right. Uh, we, we know that, we've seen that. And yet, even though he uses it, he's angered that he has to do it. Yeah. And it doesn't make it any easier for people who are going through something like that. You know, think of all the movies that have been made of somebody being drug out of their house and you watch it and you think if that ever happened to me, I would, it'd just be terrible. And then you think about the fact that God set up this beautiful land for his people to live in, starting with Abraham and then moving all the way to the spot in the story that we're at right now. And now they're just being pulled out of all of that and sent either to Assyria or to Babylon, whether we're talking about 722 or whether we're talking about 586. And I think historically speaking, it's hard to think about, but we need to just sort of frame it this way. You know, you have conquerors coming in, and both the Assyrians and the Babylon Babylonians were good at not only conquering, they were really good at conquering, but when they conquered, what they would do was they would they would mix everybody up and jumble everybody up. So they would set individuals that maybe they had taken from other places and they would set them in the new place that they'd just taken over. They would leave a leader or two there to run the show. So a governor, right, or some kind of mm-hmm. satrap and prefect. We see those in Daniel. So you've got these individuals that are running the show. You've got people that don't actually live in the promised land who have been brought in, whether they're Persian or whether they're, you know, Babylonian or Assyrian or even conquered peoples along the way. You know, you might you might have a couple of Meads or something. Uh, And so all these individuals would just get dropped off. And then you've got some Jewish people who would have been left in the land. But then you've got the majority of the Jewish people have been taken now Mm -hmm. to some of these other provinces and dropped there, just like they did the other people. So they, one of their goals was to sort of try to break culture by jumble everybody up and pushing them into other places where they don't know where they're at. They don't exactly know what they're doing. They're all speaking a different language, but Babylon or Assyria are governing them now. And so they have to follow a new set of rules, a new way of doing things. And so you have, you know, some of the people in the ruling class we see at the end of, of Chronicles and the end of Kings, some of the king's brothers and sisters being taken 
write to Babylon or write to Nineveh to, you know, basically be in the king's court. So that has why that's why some people have suggested that Daniel might actually be royalty of some kind, yeah. right? Yeah. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they might actually have some kind of you know royal blood in them. So they're they're valuable to the king of Babylon in the sense that they can read, write, they know a couple languages, they're able to do this thing. But at the same time, they're valuable because they're not going to be able to get their people to rebel in that region. So they they pull the leading class out and move them toward the capital and everybody else they kind of just jumble up and, and make them do whatever they're going to do. That's not an ideal situation for people who have been told by God, you are my people and you're yep. set up for this land. And they're trying to mesh them in the culture. Yep. I'm sure trying to get them to embrace the culture right, as much, much as possible. And like you said, really take away, in this case, that which was Hebrew and Jewish, sure, uh, you know, and God honoring out of them, right, and and make them like them, and what a what a challenge then for them to to endure while they're in this state of exile, that while they're in Babylon, right, you know, and what we see in the history that's given to us in the scriptures and elsewhere, because the fact that the scriptures even survived proves what I'm about to say. They sort of woke up and realized God wasn't lying. This really did happen. We didn't listen to him. We didn't do what he asked. The prophets told us this was going to happen. We didn't, we didn't change our direction. We stayed the course that we were. And all of a sudden there's this sort of heartbeat of repentance that starts to pop up. So you're like, you're totally right on. It's hard to stay true to your culture while you're being dropped in all these other cultures. But what we actually see from the majority of Jews, they do stay Jewish, even more Jewish than they were when they were in Israel. Like what they were supposed to be doing in Israel, honoring the one true God, living according to Torah, the law, the, the instruction, that doesn't happen on a national level until all of a sudden they're in Assyria or they're in Babylon. And you start seeing these individuals pop up, and there's guys like Ezekiel that are living amongst them prophetically speaking, saying this is what needs to happen. You've got Daniel, one of the highest members of the court, right, leading a certain way, saying certain things, and everyone's listening to him, and they're, they're choosing to follow. You've got Esther being taken up to become, you know, the, you know, the queen of the land. And so there's a number of individuals that just sort of pop onto the scene, and they just rise to these ranks that you go, how in the world is this possible? We would both suggest probably God. Yeah, it's like God is working like, even in the midst of exile. It's like he has a plan or something. Yeah, you know, it's amazing that, and it, and it speaks to to human nature in that, in the midst of the punishment, in the midst of the exile, it's like, oh yeah, we should have less listened. Right. Let's get things right, and 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 that speaks to a purpose that God has in that, right. and, and the fact that He's just, and He said, listen, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Right. But it's amazing how time makes those things fade, those ideas fade. And we even saw that too, just even with being familiar with exile. Right. And it's, you, you, you don't even really realize what your heart is longing for. That longing is for mm. a better home is still there, isn't it? Yeah. It's almost like our hearts have Eden inside of them. Yeah. Right. And there's this longing. That's the quote you used. Right. From your favorite author. Yes, Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> we, there's, I, I think we need to let them in on this. Uh, this is one of the great jokes that we have in Sermon Team. Mark does not read Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, has no idea what Star Wars is, definitely no idea what Star Trek is. 
and he enjoys mixing those metaphors <laughs> for us. Yeah. Us nerds who have watched these things and enjoy them. So this was actually a, a quote that Pastor Larry used to help make the sense of that sermon. Yeah. You used the quote in the sermon, and we all laughed and chuckled the next day that you used the Tolkien quote, even though yeah. you've probably never read Tolkien. Yeah, I, I never even saw or read about the episode when Spock got the ring. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we got to move on. <laughs> yeah, it's when Han Solo took it from him. Well, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, so, I'm a, okay. I'm a Trekkie in the true Star Wars sense. Yeah, you are something else. That's amazing. So <laughs> we have a longing for Eden, and I think... What we see in the land and what starts to happen is when they're in Babylon, their longing for Eden actually draws them to a deep desire to be committed to God's text. In fact, if you think about the, you know, imagine being carted off from Jerusalem and you're a a priestly, you know, member of the priestly order or you're a scribe and you're grabbing the scrolls, right? Whatever, Mm -hmm. you know. You've got a bunch of Isaiah sermons in one hand, and your buddy's got a bunch of Jeremiah sermons in another, and they've got the law of Moses in another hand, you know, and they're they're gathering as much as they can if they're, as they're being carted off to another land. They drop it, and it starts to roll down a hill and unroll. You're like, no, it's so big. What are we doing? <laughs> and they've got all of this stuff, and God is—it's so beautiful. God actually maintains the parts that he wants to make sure are still in. And as they go to the land, all of these— these things are there, and the priestly order and the scribal order are looking at this saying, guys, we got this wrong by a lot. We didn't read Torah correctly. We didn't actually listen to the prophets. And they're they're putting it all together and starting to realize this is the story. This is the way that God is shaping us. We need to get committed to this. So what we see in the Jewish people as they leave Babylon and move back in, which is within 70, 80 years, I mean, they start getting let to come back. You know, you read about this in Daniel. Darius lets them come back, right? A few of them, and then you got Xerxes a little bit, and you've got these various individuals that say, yeah, you can go back to the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, whatever you want to do. As they're doing that, they've learned how to read and write mm-hmm. to a much higher level maybe than what they had before. They've learned some things from Babylon, like how to create schools, how to you know build systems that teach people how to speak a language and do this sort of thing. So we actually see the synagogue system starting up right as they come back from Babylon. And in the middle of that, they're just, they start a system where you're memorizing Torah at a very young age and you're going through this ideal. And I want to know what God's word says. I'm going to be hungry for it, which just a quick, you know, pastoral note. I'm desiring that now for, I kind of hope that the church in general wakes up and realizes it's taking God's word really you know, with a laissez-faire attitude. We don't take it as seriously as we should. We don't know it as well as we should. And so we just kind of, you know, the vast majority of people in the country that call themselves Christians maybe have never even cracked it open. Yeah. And and I, my hope is that even as we face trouble and trial, it, it it makes a hunger for us to engage God's word at a deeper level. Yeah, and you, you think about, you know, even that longing for Eden. Mm-hmm. I, I've often thought about, you know, what would make a garden so amazing that I'd be just happy to be in the garden. Um, you know, Adam certainly enjoyed being there with Eve and that sort of thing, but it really goes back to that tabernacle thing too, right. doesn't it? Yeah. And, and the lack of strife, the absence of sin and tension, I think are really what helps me understand what that Eden was like. Right. 
which is what makes that whole theme of tabernacle so significant yeah. all the way all the way through the Old Testament and right into <laughs> right right into Acts. So it's it, it helps us understand that and you know just like you and I struggle to understand just how amazing the garden would have been. I think over that time when there's exile and there's, they're not able to tabernacle with God, there's this sort of loss of an understanding. You get used to, you used to exile, but there's still within you that longing Mm -hmm. for something better for, for hope. Yeah. A place that's full of, of lush and you're, you're cared for. That's a beautiful desire out of exile, right? There's a spot where God is meeting with you on a regular basis and you've got a deep connection with him. That's a desire. And there's this beauty of we want to do things right so that we can maintain this relationship with him. Now, some of that's wrong thinking because we see in the New Testament really quickly, humans still can't accomplish that on their own. Yeah. We need somebody bigger and better than that, which <clears throat> this desire for Eden, this desire for God to dwell and this desire for tabernacle starts to spark a messianic hope in the people of Israel, especially as they move back. And so, like I said, they've got school set up. They've got, you know, the language is, is being absorbed. They're reading, they're writing, they're, they're, they're memorizing Torah, they're memorizing, you know, the writings and all these things. Then there's this beautiful textual desire out of this. And then what starts to happen is they realize someone's coming to save us. Yeah. And this messianic hope is ultimately a desire that Eden will return. Yeah. And so you've got different groups splintering off and beginning. You've got a group called the Sadducees, which kind of become the priestly order. <clears throat> they set up in Jerusalem. They become very, very wealthy, and they actually run the show on in the temple. Uh, they're corrupt. They are very desirous of, of money. And so they actually start selling off the high priestly you know, order. Every year they sort of decide who the person is, and if they pay a high enough sum, they're allowed to be in to be the high priest. And so you see... It's not even close to what Moses set up, but that's the priestly order. So the Sadducees, a very strong political order. You've also got this group called the Pharisees who realized that we were exiled because we didn't follow the text well. Yep. So we got to get it. So they, we got to get it right. So they're just memorizing it like crazy. They are, they are holders of the text. And some people read the New Testament and they go, well, the Pharisees are terrible. Look at how bad Jesus is, is you know, what he's saying to them and when the fights that Jesus is having with them. I would suggest that as we move into the New Testament in the next few days, you just slow yourself on that and think. Yeah. Imagine people who are reading it correctly, but getting it wrong in how they apply it. And I think that's more what Jesus is pushing back on is saying, these folks think they have it right and they're missing my real point. So he's reinterpreting it. And that is this struggle that they're all feeling. Yeah. Uh, and I started doing that a couple of years ago when someone told me to think that way. And, and it's changed the way I see Jesus in the New Testament, not in a, you know, like a crazy, you know, he's not Messiah or something. But more that I always thought the Pharisees and, and him were were butting heads. They are, but what they're bet, butting heads about is incredibly important to both of them, and they want to yeah. get it right. And zeal. So totally. much zeal. And you see guys like Nicodemus seem to come to Christ, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a guy named Gamaliel in Acts saying, if if he's for God, why we, we can't stop yeah. this thing. Let's go. You know, Paul's a great Pharisee who who turns his heart and affection toward God. Granted, there's a miraculous turning there, but there's something going on there. And then you've got this group of people that just hate everybody that's not 
Israelite, and they don't want to have anybody ruling them besides Israelites. So they're called the Zealots, and they just want to kill people. That's they're they're basically like assassins that move in and yeah. do their thing, take out the enemy. Yeah, and then you've got a group of people that start ruling right around the time of Jesus uh, with the family name of Herod, and so everybody who's favorable toward the Herod family, they, we call them Herodians, and they loved Rome. They liked the way lavish Roman living was. And so you've got people that are sort of drawn to that. And what I, the reason why I'm bringing all these weird kind of crazy things up is Jesus chooses disciples from every one of those yeah. groups. And there's some pushback even within his disciples about who's who and why, why are you doing this? You know, I can make the case that Matthew, even if, or Levi, even if he's not an active member of the Herodian party as a tax collector, he would be considered Herodian. Yeah. You've got a guy in the disciples named Simon the Zealot. I just mentioned them a second ago. Uh, I, I've heard a pretty good case that how passionate Peter, James, and John are, that they're probably more pharisaical than we'd like them to be. They might even be inspired by the Pharisees, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got John the Baptist, whose parents are serving in the temple. So whether there's an actual Sadducee connection there, they at least had to figure this part out. Yeah, they've got some role. And then on top of that, you've got this this other group of individuals called the Essenes who are living down by the Dead Sea, and they're creating scrolls like crazy. They're just copying and copying and copying and sticking them in caves that we'll find a couple of cent, you know, a few, few millennia later. And in the middle of that, John is doing his baptisms right near there. So John has been connected to both the priestly order and the Essenes. And so now we've got this whole political landscape set. There's a desire for the Messiah, and there's a, there's a textual desire that you're seeing this beauty happening. And so the exile, God used it for an ultimate purpose of, I want to live with you. I, I, I want to show you what that looks like. And the stage is set. It's beautiful. Hope for the nations. Getting a little bit wider here. Pretty cool. Expanding the family. Yeah. So just imagine, that's the that's the context with which, you know, Mary and Elizabeth both have these amazing moments where they, they are impregnated. Uh, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth are way too old, don't have any kids, and all of a sudden the Lord speaks to Zechariah directly through an angel, and then he speaks to Mary directly, and you've got this messianic thing starting right there, and Jesus' very first message is when he starts popping on the scene is using passages from Isaiah talking about hope for the nations. Man, dude, it's crazy. And so we've, we've just done this whole Old Testament, you know, walk through as we're sort of working through what we're calling the greatest story ever told, right as we turn the page, we're going to miss 400 years of, of things that happen. In the middle of that 400 years is some of what we've covered today. Yeah, setting up all those groups. And, and then all of a sudden you're going to read about this guy named Jesus who steps on the scene. And if you've missed what we've talked about, tabernacle, love, humans are rebellious. There's a, there's a desire for something to be done about rebellion, right? There's this idea that we need someone who's, who's image, Yep. A God in the flesh. Uh, we have this this thing of, of family. We have this kingdom. Overall concept, yeah, this, this desire for a kingdom that's different than the other kingdoms. And you st- start to put all that in a blender, and you're like, man, what's going to happen? Man? Yeah, I, I believe it just helps us see the Bible through a, a, a new lens, a different angle. And I, I personally, I think it's helped me even just grow in my understanding even yet of looking at it through those lenses. So hopefully that's been true of others as well. And I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get into the life of Jesus. I am too. And the only thing that we haven't talked about 
in this part yet is God doesn't seem to love sending his people to exile. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a necessary recipe, I think, to get to where we need to get. So if anything, I read this latter part of the Old Testament, and I'm just overwhelmed that God would even use very difficult circumstances like this to drive us to where we're supposed to be, whether that is the messianic desire, whether that is the, you know, the desire to be in his text and to really spend time in his word, all those things. But his plan is perfect. And even when we're not doing what he wants us to do, he still gets us to where we need yep. to get. Yep. Shaping it all along the way. But it doesn't mean he's doing it without pain. Yeah, I mean, I think that we even see that when he's, Telling Moses, I'm done with these people. Yeah. I'm done with them. I'm right. over it. I'll make a great nation of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and what an amazing moment for Moses to go, no, no, please, please. Right. You know, have have mercy. But and I think maybe we can understand it from a parental perspective when mm-hmm. we clearly lay out what we expect of, of a child and I think we've made it very clear. We've had some warnings, some discipline along the way, and think it's all out of there. And then all of a sudden, again, really? <laughs> I told you what I would do, and now I've got to do it. Right. And so painful to have to bring that discipline. And God says, hey, I told you what I would do. Yep. If you did that, and you did it yet again. <laughs> and those, again. Those are some of my least favorite moments as a parent when I'm sitting with my child saying, you think I like doing this. This isn't anything I like doing at all. And those are moments when I totally get God in a way that I never would have otherwise. Yeah. It's for your good. Yeah, It's for your good. You don't have to like it. All right. So we went a little history, a little heart, a little weirdness, a little fun, but that kind of closes the Old Testament for us. Yep. Now we're heading to Jesus. Pretty much all of our episodes from here are just about this one guy named Jesus. It's kind of a big deal. All right. <laughs>